Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Dada Shambhu Shivananda. Born in 1949 in Shimala, India, Dada Shambhu Shivananda is a gold medalist at Punjab University with a PhD in Business and Applied Economics from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He taught at several universities in the United States before choosing a monastic life in 1979. He is currently Chancellor of Neo-Humanist Global Education Network with its headquarters in Anandagar, West Bengal, India. He is the author of Prout, Neo-Humanist Economics, Thoughts for a New Era, Mystic Verses, and Towards a Brighter Future, Fragrant Petals from the Life of Beloved Baba. Welcome to FuturePod Dada. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dada. So question one for all our guests start with is for them to tell their story about how they became a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So what's your story? Well, actually, I was uh, living in India. And when I was 16 years old, I kind of discovered uh, one spiritual master he was, and affectionately, everybody called him Baba. And he had a lot of thoughts on the condition of the society and the future of the society. So that got me into the, into the whole subject of the future of human civilization, future of human society, the predicaments which our world is facing. But I was only 16 years old when I came in contact with him. But I got so enamored by his uh, personality, by his thoughts, by his character, by his omniscience, that after a few years, I ran away from the house <laughs> to become a monk. <laughs> As you do. And I ended up in, uh, you know, I had an interview with uh, Indian Institute of Management of Ahmedabad and Kolkata which is kind of the satellite projects of MIT and Harvard. So I went for that interview. And after the interview, I just disappeared. And my parents, they became frantic looking for me. Where has he gone? But they knew that I was involved with this movement. So they contacted some of the top people in the, in the movement and who were also actually the top people in the Indian government, like, Mr. R. Prasad, he was the collector of customs and excise, and uh, Mr. V.K. Asthana, who was the director of revenue and intelligence, and Dr. Kaimal and Dr. Mang Mr. Mangal Bihari, and all these people. They were all IS officers uh, surrounding Indira Gandhi at that time. So after uh, they discovered me that I was in Varanasi in the training center, and you know, my, my worldly father, he was a criminal lawyer in the Supreme Court of India. So he took a few days to prepare himself to come there <laughs> and pleaded that I go back home and that everybody was waiting for me there. 
but I gave him a long lecture that I want to change the world and I want to create a new society and I want to do something for the country and the world. <laughs> but so, so it was like, you know, all his pleadings were not having any effect on me. But uh, he spoke to the trainer and he, you know, he advised him that before this whole thing goes into the legal battle, he would suggest that let him come and let him finish his education. And then if he still wants, uh, I will not stop him from pursuing this path. And uh, so that was kind of the agreement that me and my worldly father made. He said, you finish your education and then you can do all these, uh, you know, uh, adventurous uh, activities. <laughs> I, I came back with him and uh, my mother used to go into fits you know, looking at me and I would go in meditation for three hours, sometimes two hours. So I was in a completely different space, mental space. But the thing was that when the results came, I was top in the university and I was a gold medalist. And I would, when I would sit in the, to meditate, I would see the question paper in my mind and I'll prepare those questions and I go and I find the same questions in the, in the examination. <laughs> So, so it was like I got a, some inner experiences of this whole, you know, psychic and spiritual dimension in that, in that struggle period, you know, in that clash and cohesion. So after completing my studies in India, my uh, father, he thought it would be better that if I send him to America, because there he will not have exposure and maybe the, the charm of the worldly life will detract him. <laughs> and, he, and he'll get, and he'll forget all about this uh, sannyasi business and uh, running after sadhus and, uh, you know, following this adventurous uh, things which I was engaged in. But, uh, so I applied to two universities in America. One was in, uh, at, the, at the Wharton School of Business and another was, was in Canada, in the Lousy University. And I got admitted at both of them even got some scholarship and then I was uh, off to America and that's where I lived for the next 12 years and I did PhD in business and applied economics and I did the but I never gave up my these extracurricular activities which was uh, you know during those hippie days mm -hmm. there was a lot of interest in yoga in meditation so I, uh, I was always surrounded by people I was like a mini guru there you know and, and as a student but uh, during that time, the organization went through a lot of upheaval. And uh, so two times I went to see the master when he was uh, imprisoned and he was in jail for you know, six, seven years. He was even poisoned in the jail and then finally he was uh, you know, acquitted. And, and he also suggested to me that I should go back and finish my education. And, to, uh, and when the time is ripe, he will let me know. So that's uh, kind of what brought me back after when he was released from prison. I, I joined him in Europe. I spent some time with him in Europe. I taught for a few years in different universities in America before uh, I finally decided to become a yogic monk. And uh, when I visited uh, during one of my tours, I used to travel, you know, when I became monk, I was in Africa for two years, Middle East for two years, Europe for uh, 12 years. And one of my visits to Manila, that's where I met Sohail. Suhail and Ayatollah, and, uh, and then slowly we became, you know, familiar with each other's works. And, and, and gradually, you know, I kept my interest alive, both in, in the future of society as well as in spiritual 
development, both individual and collective. So that's actually what has been my journey all along. It has been a long journey, about 55 years. I have uh, in, lived on all continents. I was in Sweden for 12 years. I was in Thailand. I was deported from India. And uh, finally, after 12, 15 years, I, I won that case in the Supreme Court. And now I am back in India. My current responsibilities are that I am trying to build a university township in this place called Anandanagar in West Bengal in India. But also I have a global network spread out all over the world where, you know, we, you know, discuss how to lead and to bring about a human society, which is, you know, for the welfare of all, including the plants, animals, birds, insects, and all creatures, even the inanimate world. So this is, uh, has been my personal kind of journey. I have uh, participated in many of the futures forums and I have shared my views also, uh, you know, there. So I, I keep both my, you know, intellectual interest is in the future development of the creating a new human civilization, which is more harmonious and in the interest of one and all. And at the same time, also I am pursuing my own spiritual practices and journey, which uh, has been very exciting also. So that, those are the two main interests, actually, which I have. Yeah, Kasaka's work was both very pragmatic around the economics of communities and what needed to happen for the world for, for people to be supported and, and develop, so to speak. But at the same time, he, he said there also has to be the spiritual development of each and every person. So you, in some ways, are that kind of hybrid economist <laughs> and guru. <laughs> I am body, yes. Uh, you, know. you know, I realized over a period of time that actually human beings have four basic longings. Physical longing, psychic longings, psycho-spiritual longing, and spiritual longing. So this is something, you know, eternal. It doesn't matter time, age, space. You know, all human beings, you know, they have certain physical needs. So we, you know, in our spiritual philosophy, we call it kama, artha, dharma, and moksha. The physical longing is kama, is like the you know, desire for pleasure. It is inbuilt into human biology. There's nothing wrong with it that we all want pleasure. The only problem with it is that when we go after that, and we become obsessed with it, then it turns into an addiction. You know, if you uh, think that, oh, if I have a thousand dollars, I'll be, you know, all my problems will be solved. When you get thousand, you want hundred thousand. When you get hundred thousand, you want a million. When you get a million, you want you know, trillion and billion and trillion, and there is no end to it. Because it is, you know, people have a desire for pleasure, and they think that, they don't only want pleasure today, they also want a pleasure tomorrow and in, in the future. Not only for themselves, but also for their children, for their grandchildren, for great-grandchildren. They may have the great-grandchildren or not, but people want that security for the, for the future. So in that obsession, what happens is that people move towards accumulation of resources, accumulation of wealth. And we pride, as a civilization, we pride. Like, you know, there, just the other day I saw, you know, where Elon Musk, you know, asked, he, uh, they, they say that 
he's the richest man and he is very we are very proud of that that this person is the richest man well it is not really something to be proud of when there are millions of people who struggle to get two meals square meals on their table so i think a better indication of the society's progress will not be how much gdp increases and how much uh, there are few rich people but it is with everybody is provided with you know basic things of life like you know pure water good habitat you know, the basic comforts and amenities of life food clothing shelter education medicine and all these things and everybody agrees that yes we should have these things but you know it it may be in the future not it has to be today then i realized that you know studying only the mechanics of how the present system works is not enough i think there is there is deep inside there is a question of values what kind of society do we want to create and this is where moral ethical issues come into play so that what has led me to realize that actually the we cannot bring change in the society only by just fixing the system unless the mentality of the people gets reformed or gets elevated or gets uh, expanded thanks tara The second question Dada I asked the guest to talk about a framework or a philosophy that is central to how they do their practice. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? As I was mentioning that human beings are trifarious beings. They have physical needs, they have emotional and mental needs. They have also you know some spiritual longing to know the truth you know the source of where we come from and where we go we have these uh, longings not only individually but the whole society has everybody has all creatures have so that is why i think our if we look at what are those basic aspirations or longings then we can know better how to address them so the first longing is that people want pleasure they want happiness immediate happiness and uh, it is for that reason that people pursue wealth mm. because wealth is kind of a store of value you know it's a, it is you can secure your happiness whenever you want you know you want to fly to maldives okay if you have a bank account you can just buy a ticket and go there and enjoy so people usually you know that is what has led the the whole human civilization towards accumulation of wealth and you know the wealth disparities are the largest today as you are aware of thomas piketty's work where he he has been recording or or analyzing the concentration of wealth you know in the last 200 years it has been increasing and it continues this is one question which nobody dares to address it because everybody wants deep inside that they should also become rich the only problem with this is that it can turn into a, a psychic disease it can turns into an obsession or it can turn into an addiction so when you want something physical 
you you get it once you get some pleasure then you want to try it again then you want to try it again and before you know you are addicted to it so that's why i think one path which the ordinary world people they pursue is the path of of wealth it needs to be counteracted with another path which is the the yoga of restraint yogic lifestyle which is that okay we should have wealth we should not become addicted to it that means we should have a control over our mind and to see what we need we keep the rest we utilize for the betterment of society now we can discuss a little later about how you know that this problem can be addressed and i think we have this progressive utilization theory which was propounded by my master also pr sarkar and uh, where he addressed this very question of how we can use energy economy ecology health and we can address all those problems for the ensuring the minimum essentialities of life to the people without having to sacrifice you know the freedom and uh, of all now the second stage which is the more intellectual is is knowledge because people pursue knowledge so through knowledge they can also secure the wealth and keep the wealth if you give to a, a remote farmer here in anandnagar 1 million dollars he will not know what to do with it you know he won't have even uh, you know because he doesn't have the the intellectual capability even to handle the, this thought of how to utilize all this so that's why education is a very important uh, dimension and people uh, want to control knowledge also because if you control the knowledge then you can also generate the wealth or if you want to keep your wealth you need to have control over knowledge that's why in you know, large corporations they have patent systems in the capitalist system we have this you know patent system so that you know we can continue to get the the fruits or, or reap the fruits of our research for a long period of time now in order to keep this uh, mental peace mental happiness then people they want to control the power because tomorrow a new government can come a communist government can come and rip you of all your all your bank accounts and all your wealth so people want to have power in order to be able to uh, control the knowledge and control the wealth so governance issues become important there political issues become important there so uh, so unless we have a leadership which is enlightened which is uh, you know representing the interests of everybody it's not possible to change the system so i think uh, so human longings on one side whether it's physical whether it's intellectual whether it's political or whether it's uh, some higher cultural uh, creative longings for self enrichment they can be they need to be balanced by the collective interest and collective enrichment that's why you know i was uh, suggesting that you know my favorite imagery is of a tree like where i was living in sweden we had an oak tree which is about 1000 years old and even though some of the branches have dried but it still lives today and it has become a national heritage place people go there and they see they had to put this iron bars in order to protect that tree that it you know and and during the summer you see that is full of leaves and looks like a very healthy tree if we think of the tree the branches of the tree consisting of these basic aspirations of every community for example freedom happiness abundance progress and justice you know every community wants every citizen wants that they should be free 
But it's not enough to think of your individual freedom. You also have to think of collective interest. Because if your freedom takes away the freedom of others, of other creatures, then, you know, it's like jeopardizing. So then there cannot be any peace. So that's why I think one needs wisdom. One needs connection with the inner spirit. Because the tree is like, uh, you know, if you cut the tree from the roots, then the whole, all the branches, they die out. So where does the tree drives its strength? It drives from, you know, the vitality from its roots. And in the roots, what is there? There's a physical dimension, but then there is also a subtle dimension. There is a causal dimension. There is a spiritual dimension, which is, uh, you know, consciousness. That's why I think the, you cannot transform society only by, you know, some policies until the people themselves also get elevated and their consciousness does not expand. Now, similarly, people want happiness, but you can't uh, get happiness unless you follow an ideal lifestyle, a proper lifestyle, which will secure good health, you know, emotional balance, you know, growth. So, so this happiness also requires concern for the, you know, inner ecology and the outer ecology. You know, both we have to take into account. So like this, I think similarly, you know, abundance and prosperity. You can't have abundance and prosperity if you go away from nature. Because abundance comes from nature. If, you, if we align our economy with nature, we find that, you know, abundance comes. Otherwise, we move into scarcity. But what we have done through monoculture, you know, we have eliminated many of the species, many of the varieties which are there of plants, of, of birds, of, of everything in nature. So I think we need a mindset that we have to preserve the diversity. We have to minimize the disparities, but we have to preserve the diversity. You know, disparities are kind of a cancer in the, in the human civilization, but diversity is the source of beauty of the human civilization. So we need to preserve the diversity. In fact, uh, think of how we can utilize this diversity create greater degrees of freedom in society. Similarly, we want progress, you know, we need to use science and technology for management of change. We cannot go back to the old ages and say, okay, we'll now go back to the bullock cart age when we have the possibility of having even creating small, small helicopters for each person to go from one place to another. Well, you know, the technology has been growing. It, it has always been there. Even the birds, they demonstrate scientific mind when they build their nests and build their houses. So we cannot say that only human beings have the control over technology or scientific mindset. You know, in nature, it is present everywhere. We learn from nature, in fact. Nature is the biggest scientist. That is the source of our, our understanding about physical universe. But uh, there is, of course, a lot more hidden in the psychic dimension and in the spiritual dimension, which we have not even begun to explore. And then we also want justice and accountability. And that, again, it can only happen if we take into account the voices of the margins, like the sanitation workers, the migrant workers, the people in the, in the lowest echelon of society, you know, who, who keep our society clean. We have to look after their welfare. So I think we really, the old mindset which um, is built on greed or selfishness or individualism or competition, it can only take us so far. 
But then we see that we have also reached a point in the development of our society where you know, it's like every aspect of life has been monetized. You know, in India, it, it used to be a, considered an act of dharma where if somebody comes to your home, you give them fresh water. And it was the collective responsibility of the society to have sufficient enough fresh water. But uh, today, we have monetized even water and people get these plastic bottles. And then where do we throw these plastic bottles? That becomes another problem in the society. I think we have to be, begin to think of uh, the whole future of society. What kind of society we want and for whom? Only for us? Only for human beings? Only for our community? Only for our citizens? Or do we want to create a world which is safe, which is comfortable, which is bounteous for all creatures and for all human beings? That is what actually the spiritual life has taught me and which has led me to thinking in this direction that really the world needs a revolution of thought before it, we, we bring about political changes or economic changes. And of course, education has a very important role to play in order to, and, and that's what actually I have dedicated my life to, is to, to education. And because Gurukul, you know, I'm the head of Gurukul, is called, uh, and the Gurukul means, uh, it was an old ancient system of education where the, the children will learn from the teacher. They'll imbibe higher values of life, you know, by observing their teacher. So it was a value-oriented education. And this is actually what, uh, has been fascinating journey for me is to, to explore where the society has gone wrong or where they have made a detour where and they need to come back and, and follow the path which will be good for all. Is spiritual development a straightforward process to, to roll out a process of spiritual development for all people? Is that a, is that a straightforward process? Spirituality is a foundational thing. For example, survival, physical survival. Okay, there may be different degrees of somebody may live in a five-room house and somebody lives in a two-room house, but at least the basic survival, physical existence is, is absolutely essential for all creatures. So similarly, intellectual development is foundational for, for everybody because if you don't develop the mind, then you cannot use even the physical environment properly. Like I move here, you know, we have a, a festival here. And when the festival takes place, all these villagers, you know, hundreds, thousands of villagers, they come to that festival. But when they leave, they leave behind such a, you know, mess of uh, plastic everywhere. For kilometers, you know, you have to go around. And I, I've been walking myself for, for, you know, half a kilometer, just picking up all this garbage which people throw. And people don't have this consciousness. You know, that's why this country is, uh, India particularly, is ancient and it's, uh, but they don't have norms of cleanliness still. And people don't even have it in their consciousness that they should leave the place which is clean and uh, good for, for everybody else. But they just, you know, they'll open their pan parag and, and leave the, the things there and uh, it's everywhere. And that's only one aspect, but like that, I think the physical changes cannot come without psychological changes, without the expanding the awareness, the attitudes, the lifestyles of people. And you cannot bring those changes unless people feel something greater in their life, that, oh, their life has a greater meaning, has a greater purpose, not just only to eat, sleep, and, and to die, 
but life has some some deeper meaning deeper purpose and i think that's why i feel that if you were to put the priorities which is more important physical mental or spiritual i would say spiritual should be number 1 intellectual should be number 2 and physical should be number 3 but you have to take care of all the three and that's why i think we my feeling is that the spiritual education uh, has to begin at a very early age and that is the easy uh, that is the best time to start because they are more open but at the same time you know we cannot uh, dictate people's spiritual development somebody is born maybe born saint and the other person might be have to go through many criminal <laughs> route to in order to become a saint that's also possible in society so i think we have to provide the scope for the development of all three so at least the minimum essentialities of life to all on the physical level and then comforts and growth and things that can vary from society to society place to place but at least the existential needs need to be fulfilled for all not only human beings but even other creatures and then certain basic psychological traits you know values have to be infused in society to all of courage of kindness of compassion all the things which uh, will make a very peaceful and uh, healthy society those things you know have to be inculcated in the, from the childhood onwards at least we can plant the spiritual seed from the early age and then of course not everybody will be able to for example sit in meditation for 2 hours and and take a dip in the in this ocean of joy which is what the spiritual world is all about and and to develop that deep equanimity and what we call samadhi or or to develop that universal love or feeling of uh, oneness with everything uh, you know i don't think uh, i agree with you it cannot be a straight process for uh, it will vary from person to person but at least certain basic things should be non negotiable that everybody you know believes in certain universal outlook of life you know and which is beyond religion beyond race beyond you know cultures and which everybody respects that yeah because that's what the truth is all about okay i might go to question 3 because i'm interested now if that's your fundamental philosophy for effectively determining how you and others live and and how we build society and adjust society then as you make sense of the world around us what are you, what are you paying attention to what are you seeing emerge that gives you hope and what are you seeing emerge that gives you fear what are the things around you that are getting your attention i see that we have made lot of progress uh, you know in the human society but we lack the basic uh, sense of community in the in the world still human society is not one and indivisible there is still many fissiparous tendencies and narrow sentiments and uh, class divisions and things which keep society you know separated i think uh, for example when people are in india they think of pakistanis as their enemies they think of china as their enemy they may think of nepal as their brothers or bangladesh as their brothers you know we have to raise the level of consciousness 
where we see the entire humanity as one people, you know, irrespective of caste, creed, race, religion, nationality, like this. So we have to build one human society. That that consciousness has to be strengthened. It is it is happening already, you know, through technology, through communications. It is already happening. But I think that has to be. But we have to go beyond even the human species and to embrace the biodiversity consciousness. And that uh, is not yet inbuilt into our education systems the way it, it should be. It's just like a lip service, you know. Yeah, there is climate problems and we have to look after this. And you no, know, we should think of creating communities and nations and societies which respect that biodiversity consciousness. So that, I think, uh, has to be the fundamental, you know, premise on which we, we move forward. And I think we are still far away from it. There are some progressive people, you know, who are aware of it. And then there are millions of other people, you know, for whom that's not a concern. You know, here, like, since I'm in a very remote place, here, you know, the people still cut the trees and they just use it for firewood. This is their sustenance. They are so poor that the only source they can see is. But now, after 30, 40 years of our planting more than a million trees in this area, now they are becoming conscious, oh, they can also plant trees. They can also create a mango orchard. So like in this, we have a 675 square kilometer uh, township which we are building. And here, wherever you see green, you know that that is a Gurukul or Anandamarga project or something because you know they pay attention to planting trees and preserving trees. We have a plan for 88 sanctuaries here in this, in this area. And it's because wildlife management is very important. If you don't take care, there used to be elephants, there used to be lions, there used to be tigers, there are snakes. Even the, my campus, just six months ago, we collected about five cobras, vipers, and took them and, and put them in a, in a distant forest. And they were on, on my campus, which we, I was just beginning to, to, to restart building. You know, it's 15-acre campus here, which we are university headquarters, you know, building uh, area. So I think the, on the physical level, we have to, just some basics are there. For example, if we want to ensure, you know, that everybody gets the opportunity to survive and to exist, there are three things we need. We need the assessment of community needs. We need to make sure that they have the purchasing capacity through employment. And they need availability of goods and services because the wants will not turn into demand unless, you know, you have the purchasing capacity given to the people. So these should be non-negotiable. You know, every community, we should know what they need. What are the community needs? And of course, developed countries, you know, may have, but many, I think, large part of the world still does not have this. So I think our, our entire economic planning needs to be very balanced, you know, to not only few cities, you know, like we find today, as you are aware, you know, all these mega, mega cities like Mexico City and New York City and the Tokyo and all these big cities, they are becoming too much population, too dense. And we have taken away all the, you know, flora and fauna from that area. And gradually, the quality of life is very poor. People want to run away from there. To you know, During Corona times, those were the places where there was the maximum, like Bombay and Delhi. Yeah. 
you know they had the maximum corona you know spread because there is there has not been uh, thinking of balanced development uh, and it takes time and it takes uh, conscious thought to bring about some developed countries like germany you go any part any part of germany and you find it is equally developed you know you will get all the basic amenities of life in every place so some developed countries of course they have but uh, still the large part of the world i think is deprived of that balanced approach i think uh, we need to go back to the basics we need to create a world in which every community or every area is self reliant is resilient in you know they have basic amenities of life you know this should be guaranteed in all the places and and the whole world should uh, work together to first provide that before we go to the moon and before we go to the mars and go to all the other places because we are in the what colonization we have done there now we want to colonize the rest of the space so what do we we bring the same values which are have created distortions here in the world thus we are also distorting the the outer space with the same because there is a lot of competition you know this this whole idea of competition between nations so we need a different outlook you know it's like economic decentralization so the economic power should not be centralized peter what you uh, see the capitalists and the communism which were ruling in the last century they were the two sides of the same coin one where centralization of economic power in the hands of the private individuals and other centralization of economic power in the hands of the state but they were both were the same model but they were matter centered you can say you know ideology which was ruling the whole planet what we need is just the opposite of that you know that means decentralization of economic power let the economic power go in the hands of the people and local people where you live that's where you build up your purchasing power and then whatever surplus is generated share it with your neighbors with your community with the rest of the the country and and with the rest of the world so i think uh, it's a, but politically we need to have greater coordination we need world government this is the need of the hour it's not a luxury you know world government does not mean that okay power is if greater coordination because in nature does not discriminate between one nation or another it just you know the birds they fly everywhere the the viruses they spread everywhere so we need to have a global more stronger global coordination in order to address the problems of the planet earth and i think uh, why one nation spend so much wealth on uh, on uh, armaments and on nuclear or on just you know you know this fight between china and india you know how much of their budget goes into defense it doesn't have to be that if we can change the mindset globally you know global uh, defense budget but that is to protect from any forces which might destroy everybody on the planet i think uh, people using their scarce resources instead of putting them in providing uh, sustenance to the people it is being used in in unproductive non productive uh, areas now these are not uh, only economic issues these are political issues but these are social issues and these are issues of mindset you know so unless if there is a evolution of mind spiritual dimension it is developed culturally if people come together then gradually gradually you know this uh, the na- nation uh, states that dichotomy of because these nation states are also just historically whosoever had more power took control of the of the physical space so that's also not it may be historically right but it may not be morally right 
So I think we have to really, uh, we need a new generation of, of uh, leaders, you know, who will have a global uh, orientation and uh, nature orientation, spiritual orientation. This is what Sarkar, he called Sadvipras. So we need Sadvipras in this world to bring about transformation of this planet. But where will the Sadvipras come? How they will be, you know, e evolved? Well, that's where education has an important role. But that's where, uh, you know, when the crisis comes, then people out of that crisis, you know, people will emerge. With, with, so I think we need a, a more developed philosophy of life. We need a more rational approach. And at the same time, we need, you know, coordination and cooperation mentality rather than just competitive and self-centered, you know, philosophy guiding. So this is, I think, what I might call God-centered philosophy is what needs to replace the matter-centered and dogma-centered. I mean, as you look around the world, you see, particularly you mentioned political and institutional, people have the lowest levels of recorded confidence in both their leaders and their institutions around the world. And yet, I've always felt that those leaders, to some extent, represent their constituencies, in other words, leaders such as they are, are the leaders they are partly for what people expect of them. It's almost like there's a double bind. It's if you want different leaders, then you have to set about and allow different leaders to emerge and support different leaders. But we're not seeing that necessarily. We're seeing people, when they see scarcity, we're seeing the rise of authoritarian leaders again. It's not a simple process of people wanting to change, they actually have to support leaders who would create change. And also, I think the system also, like democracy, is a very, you know, it's very nice, you know, everybody has the right to vote and to express their opinion. But in a society, a democratic society, two idiots are better than one wise person mm. because they have two votes. Correct. And then when democracy is hijacked by the money uh, interest, people spend millions of dollars, millions of rupees or whatever local currencies people have to get elected. Not only to get elected, even to get into the medical school, they have to spend, you know, to complete their education. And naturally, everything is monetized. So people, you know, when they get into that power, they want to first to get the return on their investment. So that's what people do. You know, they just think of society, they put society in the back burner and they think of their personal, you know, interests, you know. So the whole society is guided by self-interest. The systems are guided by self-interest. So the systems should be guided by collective interest and not self-interest. The self-interest should be subservient to the collective interest. And how can we ensure it? That means we have to take the money out of the, the political equation. Nobody should be allowed to uh, spend so much money in order to get elected. People should get elected by, and, and, and uh, there should be some mechanisms by which be, they can tell their constituencies what they stand for. And let the people vote and decide. Why to waste, you know, this? So uh, you see that uh, the, the monetary system or the wealth, you know, is in, in, in you know, like in Prout, I think you are familiar with the, you know, there is the warrior, the, the laborers uh, age, and then there's the warriors age, and then there is the intellectuals age, and then there is the, the merchant uh, age or the capitalist age. Or, 
No, well, in a society like today, it is the domination of the Vaishyan, you know, mentality. And that dominates the intellectuals, also the warriors. The warriors have to defend the wealth of the, of the people who, you know, you know, who have all that wealth. So I think uh, we need to change both systems as well as the individuals. You cannot only say that if individuals will improve, automatically society will change. No, because if systems are defective, then even good people, they feel constrained to function within that system. So I think systems also need the refinement and improvement. You know, there are laws and the laws become outdated, but still the laws are there and people have to follow those laws. So there, every law should have a time limit, you know, 15 years, 20 years, 10 years, one year, 100 years, and then let it be reviewed and then, you know, because there are changes which are taking place constantly in the society. So uh, I, I think that the fundamental principle is individual welfare and collective welfare. Neither we want to sacrifice the individual welfare, nor we want to sacrifice the collective welfare. And when there is a conflict between individual welfare and collective welfare, you know, there should be some things which are in individual welfare should be non-negotiable, which will provide them basic existence and survival and, and uh, existential value. And similarly, there should be certain things in the collective welfare which should be non-negotiable, because if your actions they destroy the society, destroy the nature, destroy the, the flora and fauna, then that should be non-negotiable also. Not that you can kill as many fishes as you want, as many chickens as you want, and you can as many birds as you want, and then just because they are mute, they cannot speak. No, I think everybody should have the voice. So I think that's why I think uh, Sarkar, he gave the philosophy of new humanism. He says, in the love of human heart, extends to embrace the entire living and the non-living world that is new humanism. You know, I was once, uh, when he, he propounded this theory, I was, uh, he came from his morning field walk and as he was climbing up the stairs, he stopped and he asked, what is new humanism? Have you understood what is new humanism? Hey, somebody gave some answer or something, but no, he was not satisfied. So then he stopped on the stairs in Calcutta, in his house, Lake Garden's house, and he said, when the love of human heart extends to embrace the entire living world, that is neo-humanism. As, after saying this, he started climbing up, and I was just behind him, so I asked him, I said, Baba, what about the inanimate world, so-called non-living world, you know? He says, yes, it also includes the so-called inanimate world. And then he just, after speaking this, he went to his room, and after about 40 seconds or so, his personal assistant, he called, uh, he called me that Baba is calling you. So I went into his room. I rushed and went to, in, into his room. And he said, have you marked that when I walk, I don't even strike a pebble with this respect? Why? Because even that pebble, which is, does not seem to have life, is an expression of that universal consciousness. So what we call inanimate actually is not inanimate. It also has consciousness in it, only it is not manifested. Salt, for example, you know, if you body you take salt, okay, is something inanimate or oxygen or nitrogen. But can the body exist without these things? It makes animation possible. The things which are themselves considered to be inanimate, but they make animation possible. So he says, nothing in this universe is without consciousness. Everything is the expression of that universal consciousness. So I suddenly I realized that, 
you know what uh, wonderful this philosophy is is how expensive this philosophy is is not only treating human beings not only treating flora and fauna but also the, even the inanimate world as as having equal rights you can say and he said i have given this philosophy only in a sutra form you know like i have only given the formula now you you should do research and elaborate it and 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 build a, a, a new humanistic society based on on that on that research and that that's why i i, I feel attracted towards these uh, you know his thoughts like of prout and the new humanism and tantra and spirituality because i find that among all the ideas which are prevalent in the world these are the most synthetic ideas which could bring together diverse uh, diversities and remove the disparities and help to build a really a uh, good human civilization so it's not just only because he was my master but i think i learned so much by his example that's why you know i had no qualms about leaving my you know 100000 job and uh, you know my all the prestige that went with wharton school and the wall street and everything and just you know became his his monk and uh, started working in the in in the slums of pangani and in 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 nairobi and in uganda and tanzania i moved in more than you know 100 countries all over the world over the last 30 40 years it it kind of brought me in connection with life this is life you know so the the biggest challenge peter is the is how to expand one's consciousness from body consciousness where we think i am the body to how thinking that oh i am this or that you know we have so many labels which uh, make us different from others and everybody is unique everybody is different but it does not matter because behind everything we are all the same and that is that we are that spirit we are that consciousness and i think it is this knowledge the spiritual knowledge which is in greatest need today in the world and it gets kind of you know through the religious uh, institutions or through certain uh, traditions or through certain dogmas it gets polluted i think but uh, if we can go beyond it to the mystical aspect of every religion whether is uh, you know kabbalah or whether is the christian mysticism or whether is sufism or it's yoga or or whatever then you find it really humanity is one and humans path is one and humans goal is one and this is i think what is the greatest contribution of sarkar that he he articulated these universal values in a way even though he was a spiritual master but he talked about economics uh, himself he did not even finish his intermediate which is like high school but he expounded he he gave uh, like an encyclopedic discourses running into 28 volumes on old rigvedic words he spoke more than 100 and uh, you know all the languages of the world and he knew even the grammar of those languages when he'll talk about history he'll talk about thousands of years and millions of years of history like as if he was witnessing so there is lot of charm i think in uh, having having had this opportunity to to physically live with a person who not only whose consciousness was developed but who could articulate it in a way that it made sense to logical people rational people thinking people so it was not that you have to believe just because i say you have to believe no he says you should challenge everything that what i have said and then you follow what you make sense to you 
I think that's, uh, I think that type of pragmatic spirituality or rational spirituality or critical spirituality is what is the need of the hour and not just only, you know, old belief systems, which are, you know, you know they also have a place. They also, the faith also has a place in, in, in the spiritual life. But, you know, faith, if it is devoid of rationality and love, then it turns into a dogma. So I think we need both. And, and the starting point has to be the love, you know. That's, I think, the, the fundamental uh, starting. It, should, it is the beginning, it is the middle, it is the end, you know. Uh, only one thing I will add is that I think new humanist education is the next step. Because unless we can educate our children with this expanded consciousness and with the skills, we won't be able to actualize the, you know, the ideal which we have in front of us. That's why I have chosen to concentrate on, on education. And I feel that that has a very significant role in today's world is to create leaders who are empathic, who are knowledgeable, who are compassionate, but who are also decisive and who are also commanding and who, whose life represents their thoughts. So there's no gap between thought words and actions. They should be one. So that type of leadership, I think if we can we can have in the world, I think there is definitely hope. And I have a lot of hope. <laughs> well, Dara, it's been, it's been a pleasure to talk again. Thank you very much for taking some time out to spend a bit of time with the FuturePod community. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.